great to see you, Purpose Church. Oh my goodness, how God has been working in and through uh, you, our church, this summer. I just heard a few minutes ago before uh, I began to preach here that uh, we have about 200 students and their leaders up at camp uh, this uh, week, and uh, 19 of them, of our students, got baptized this week. So we just praise God. Uh, thank you for your prayers and your financial support and all the other ways that God is using you uh, to change our world for Christ. Uh, before we get into our study, I would like to highlight our Arabic ministry. We actually have eight services each Sunday. Of course, here in the worship center, there's 8.30 and 10 and 11.30. And then our three microsites uh, in Pomona, uh, in different parts of Pomona at one o'clock on Sunday afternoons. And then at 11.30, in addition to our uh, worship service here in the worship center, uh, we have our Spanish service in the B building and our Arabic service in the H building. And I got a chance to visit the Arabic service a couple of weeks ago, and I had such a great time. Uh, their services go out to hundreds of people across the Arab world every Sunday from our H building. So they're having their service there, but it's being sent out uh, across the Arabic world and around the world. Uh, pastor Ashraf, our Arabic pastor here at Purpose Church, he speaks to millions of people across the Muslim world regularly through his live weekly program on Al Hayat uh, called Through the Bible. And uh, just recently, Al Hayat uh, began translating his live show that you'll see here uh, behind me into the languages of Afghanistan. And so God is just using Pastor Ashraf in such an incredible way. As a matter of fact, uh, I want to show this video to you that explains the ministry of Al Hayat that our own Pastor Ashraf is a part of. Let's watch this together. Al-Hayat, meaning life, is an Arabic language, 24-7 Christian TV channel founded in 2003. Al-Hayat's mission is to use innovation and emerging technologies to proclaim the gospel of Christ fearlessly, unveil the deception of Islam respectfully, and empower Muslim background believers to fulfill the Great Commission boldly. Al-Hayat is currently broadcasting through the internet, satellite, and through many social media formats. Dozens of different program series are being produced each year in the Arabic language. To expand Al-Hayat's influence into the whole Muslim world, Al-Hayat has broadened the work outside of the Arab world by producing programs in partnership in Turkish, Somali, Farsi, Pashto, Dari, and Amharic. The goal is to produce programs in every possible language that can reach Muslims. In addition, through a strong partnership with the Messianic body in Israel, we share the gospel in Hebrew 
through Shalano TV. Our desire is to see many Israelis to come to know the love of God through Christ the Messiah and to see the reconciliation between Jews and Arabs. All broadcasting is supported by providing follow-up to viewer inquiries. In recent years, Al Hayat has received more than 540 million responses, reactions, and comments. Our follow-up team reports that thousands of individuals turn to Christ each month. Our team is committed to help Muslim background believers in church planting in their communities and publishes literature and discipleship material. Support is also given to the churches in the West as they confront refugees and immigrants from Muslim countries and share the gospel with them. Today, we are witnessing a historic change in the Muslim world. Through media, many Muslims can now hear the good news about the love of Jesus Christ for the first time. We need your prayers and your support in order to continue to reach the whole Muslim world. We welcome you to become a partner in our worldwide network. And you support Pastor Ashraf and our Arabic ministry through your faithful giving. And that's why we believe here at Purpose Church that generous people literally transform the world. Uh, now today we're continuing our 2023 series in which we're studying 66 books of the Bible in 52 weeks. And the title of our series is Jesus on Every Page. We found Jesus in every book of the Bible we've studied so far. Genesis now today through the book of Nahum is where we're at uh, this morning. The section of the Bible that we're in today is the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. So we're calling this series within a series, The Minors. Uh, Jesus said that the entire Old Testament pointed to him, including the Minor Prophets. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that included the minor prophets. Verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and in all the Psalms. And again, that included the minor prophets. John chapter 5, Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Uh, chapter 5, verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Uh, and so in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Peter continues, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest of care, 
trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you uh, by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so these minor prophets were actually serving us, uh, the body of Christ here, uh, thousands of years later and all the ones in between to point to Jesus. Uh, the title for today's study is Nahum, Jesus our wrath bearer. Let's look at some background for Nahum. It takes seven minutes to read the book. A minute a day for seven days or seven minutes all at once and you can read this little book of Nahum. A content, a prophecy of God's judgment against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, for her oppression, cruelty, and idolatry, concluding with the destruction of the city. The prophet was the one that the book is named after, Nahum, from Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, otherwise unknown, even his own hometown is uncertain. The date of his prophetic activity is sometime before the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC during the period of Judah being under the control of Assyria. Now it was totally politically incorrect and bold for Nahum to prophesy against Assyria at this point in history because they were under the control. The, uh, Judah was under the control of uh, Assyria. And so for him to do this, it would be like a prophet from one of the countries of the old Soviet Union during that time preaching against Moscow and Russia. It could get him in a lot of trouble. Now here's the emphasis of the book. God's sovereignty over all the nations, God's execution of justice against cruelty, God's overthrow of the arrogant who think of themselves as invincible. Now here are the important dates uh, to remember. And remember because this is BC, um, the larger dates are going down to the smaller dates. Uh, reverse of uh, AD is uh, BC. 785 BC. We talked about this last Sunday. Jonah prophesied against Nineveh and the people of Nineveh repent, but later they go back to their old ways. And in 722 BC, Nineveh, uh, capital of Assyria, destroys the northern kingdom of Israel, but God spares the southern kingdom of Judah. Now it seems totally unfair that when God uh, punished his people Israel for their rebellion, he used the Assyrians who were far, far, far more evil than Israel in order to do it. Uh, how many of you have ever felt that God was unfair? How many of you have ever not fully understood the ways of God uh, in your life? Uh, how many of you are wondering if this is officially dumb questions from Pastor Glenn Day? <laughs> well, Sunday, uh, next Sunday is your guy. Uh, I'm preaching on Habakkuk, who is my favorite minor prophet, and he's going to deal with the question, what to do when God seems unfair? And it seemed unfair for him to judge the northern kingdom Israel by a far worse people, the Assyrians. Now, God spares the southern kingdom of Judah because at this time in history, they remain faithful to God and he protects them in a supernatural way. 
Then 663 BC, Nineveh is at the height of its power after it defeats uh, Egypt. But from this time until its destruction uh, by the Babylonians 50, 50 years later, it's the biggest city in the world. So at the time that Nahum prophesies this, it is the biggest, most powerful uh, city in the world. And Assyria is probably the greatest empire in, in the world at the same time. When Nahum prophesies these things, they seem utterly ridiculous. 650 BC, Nahum prophesied against Nineveh. So right at the peak of its power. And yet, in 612 BC, just a few years there, thereafter, Nineveh, Syria, is destroyed by Babylon, never to be significant again in human history. So they're right at their peak when Nahum uh, prophesies against them. And yet, what is that, 38 years later, um, uh, they're completely destroyed, never to be heard of, never to be significant again in human history. You know, it's considered one of the mysteries of human history by historians that Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire disappeared practically overnight. Uh, if when Nahum prophesied against Nineveh in 650 BC, if you would have told someone that 2,600 years from now, Jerusalem would be in the news worldwide practically on a daily basis. You know, I checked it um, just as I was uh, putting this into my notes. And sure enough, Israel in the headlines again today. Uh, Jerusalem in the headlines again today. If you would have told somebody at this time that Jerusalem, Israel, would be in the news globally on, a, on a, almost a daily basis and that Nineveh and the Assyrians would be completely forgotten they would have thought that you were crazy. They would have thought that you were insane. Now, why was Nineveh judged by God? Uh, the first reason is idolatry. Nahum says in chapter one, verse 14, the Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. After Nineveh was burned by the Babylonians, the temple of Nabu, who was a major deity of Nineveh, was razed to the ground and burned with ash and covered with ash, buried by the ash uh, from that fire. Uh, the statue of Ishtar was discovered prostrate and headless amid the ruins of her temple, which had stood in Nineveh for almost 15 centuries and yet it had fallen practically overnight. Along with idolatry was the sin of their pride. Uh, here was a map of the Assyrian Empire at its peak. Everything you see in either dark green or light green, all of that was the extent of the Assyrian Empire when Nahum prophesied against it. And as we saw uh, last Sunday, Assyria was possibly the cruelest most given to torturing other people, most vicious, most terrorizing empire in all of human history. They were absolutely vicious. They would um, torture the people they captured. They would parade their bodies as a way of terrifying and terrorizing those that they had not yet conquered. 
And Nahum writes about them in chapter 2, verse 13. At the height of their power, uh, God says, I am your enemy, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Your chariots will soon go up and smoke. Your young men will be killed in battle. Never again will you plunder conquered nations. The voices of your proud messengers will be heard no more. So idolatry, uh, pride. But then the other reason was murder, lies, treachery, witchcraft, and injustice. Chapter 3, verse 1. What sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels, horses' hooves pound, and chariots clatter. All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. Uh, Nahum uh, chapter 3, verse 7. All who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. Where are the mourners? Does anyone regret your destruction? The Babylonian chronicles from this time period of antiquity said they turned the city into a ruin mound and a heap of debris. Carl E. Armerding, a Bible scholar, writes, this debacle, debacle is still regarded as one of the greatest riddles of world history. Within a span of 80 years, Nineveh, which had been raised to unrivaled prominence by Sennacherib and his successors, was obliterated from living memory. Thus ended the life of imperial Assyria, unmourned and virtually forgotten. Sennacherib, uh, the dictator, the head, the king of uh, the Assyrian Empire, had boasted at its, at its peak, at its prime of his city, he writes, Nineveh, the noble metropolis, the city beloved of Ishtar, wherein are all the meeting places of gods and goddesses, the place where the gods and goddesses hang out, the everlasting substructure, the eternal foundation, whose plan had been designed from of old and whose structure had been made beautiful along with the firmament of, of heaven. And yet Nineveh was never rebuilt and for the next 300 years at least, there's no evidence that the site of Nineveh was even occupied. That is, people didn't even pitch their tents there. Just nothing. Uh, the military, military leader and historian, Exonophon, uh, passed by the ruins around 400 BC, and he didn't even recognize them uh, when he passed by. The Syrian writer, Lucian, wrote, Nineveh has perished and there is no trace left where it once was. The Cambridge Ancient History says that no other land seems to have been sacked and pillaged so completely as was Assyria. The disappearance of the Assyrian people will always remain a unique and striking phenomenon in ancient history. Uh, this happened in complete fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy. Now, Compare the Assyrians uh, to the Jewish people who had been endlessly persecuted and scattered around the world for almost 2,000 years, but were supernaturally called back from the ends of the earth 
to form the nation of Israel in 1948 in perfect fulfillment of Scripture. Contrast the two. Nahum 3, verse 13. Look at your troops. They're all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. And at the time that he prophesied that, it was the most powerful empire possibly in all of human history, certainly the most powerful of that time. And yet within a brief amount of time, completely disappears. Nahum 3, verse 18, your shepherds, which is another word for leaders, your rulers are asleep, O Assyrian king. Your princes lie dead in the dust. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no healing for you for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy. Where could anyone be found who has not suffered from your continual cruelty? Now, with the time we have remaining, let's talk about how Nahum points us to Jesus. Number one, there will come judgment. There will come a judgment. And Nahum talks about this with regard to Nineveh, uh, starting in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Now, some people are uncomfortable, and, and we're all uncomfortable, I think, at times, uh, with passages like this that talk about God's judgment and his wrath. It, it, it makes us uncomfortable. And some people would say that the idea of God's judgment increases human violence. But I would say that the exact opposite is true. You see, the hope of God's judgment someday actually reduces the need for violence. If you know that God is going to judge everything and everyone in the future, you don't have to take revenge into your own hands and do it yourself. You can leave it up to God. That's exactly what Paul wrote to the Romans who were severely persecuted uh, in the Roman Empire, to the followers of Christ in the Roman Empire. He said, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And that is why the greatest acts of revenge over the past century have come at the hand, hands of atheists. Uh, they're the ones, it makes sense, that because they're the ones who believe that, that this life is the only shot you've got to take revenge. If you're gonna do it, you gotta do it now. 
And if there's no God, then it's up to you to take vengeance into your own hands. And that's why the three uh, greatest killers and, and takers of revenge of the last century, Mao Zedong, uh, be somewhere between 49 and 78 million deaths, um, uh, an atheist. Joseph Stalin, also an atheist, 23 million deaths. Adolf Hitler, an atheist, 17 million deaths. But we have the hope, we have the hope that through the coming judgment of God, all injustices will someday become just and all wrongs will one day be made right. So we don't have to, like a Stalin or Mao Zedong or, or Hitler, we don't have to take things into our own hands, revenge into our own hands. Uh, all injustices someday, God will make just and all wrongs will be made right. We can trust God to do it. We can leave it in his hands. And then number two, there will come an end to suffering. Nahum 1, verse 12. Although I've afflicted you, Judah, and eventually Judah would go through the same judgment um, because of turning their backs on God to idols and to other gods that Israel in the north, it would eventually happen to Judah in the south. Although I've afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. There will come an end to suffering. And number three, there will come an end to the power of the oppressor. Uh, verse 13, again in chapter 1. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. And then number four, there will be some who will hear, uh, be repentant. By repentance, we mean turning away from their sin, turning to God. It doesn't mean to be perfect but it means you turn away from it and you receive God's forgiveness and then he begins to empower you to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Be repentant and receive grace. God will be a stronghold and a refuge for them. Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Now the key is repentance. Uh, the Bible, for example, says that Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he was. But he was actually a friend of repentant sinners. Now, it didn't matter who you were. You could be a tax collector or a Pharisee, and you could approach Jesus. He was approachable. But when you encountered Jesus, it became a point of decision to repent or not to repent. Uh, John 5, verse 14, a man healed by Jesus. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Same thing is true in John chapter 8. Uh, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman who had been uh, caught in adultery, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so the key is to repent. Not gonna be perfect until we get to heaven. But we turn from our sin. We, we turn from it, that's repentance, towards God. We receive his grace and his forgiveness. And now we say, God, I wanna live in a way that's pleasing to you. Would you show me what that way is? Would you empower me? 
to live that way. And then number five, there will be the gospel promise of peace through the person of Jesus. Nahum 1 verse 15, look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news. That's the gospel. It means good news. There's going to come one who brings the gospel, the good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, which all pointed to Jesus. All the Day of Atonement and the Passover and all those. Celebrate your festivals that, that point to Jesus and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Now last week we saw that before Nahum preached his sermon to Nineveh and, and they did not repent, Jonah preached a sermon to Nineveh and 120,000 of these people of Nineveh, notorious in world history for their cruelty, their injustice, their idolatry, their, their involvement in the occult, um, uh, witchcraft, all these things, 120,000 of them repented and God forgave them. Now here's the good news. If God will forgive a repentant Ninevite, he will forgive a repentant me. I look at the Ninevites and, and, and maybe I haven't done things to the extreme that they did, but oh, that sin still resides within my heart. And the good news is, if God will forgive a repentant Ninevite, he will re forgive a repentant me and a repentant you. There's hope for us. If there's hope for the people of Nineveh, there's hope for us. And it's because Jesus took all of the sin of the Ninevites and all of the sins of you and me, of us on himself on the cross. Jesus, our wrath bearer. He bore the wrath for the people of Nineveh if they had only repented and he bears the wrath of God, of a holy God, if we repent as well. Ezekiel 7 verse 8 I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. And I stand before God and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. But here's the good news. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then that great passage in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever repents and turns and trusts in Christ and believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Every person, including us, that encounters Jesus, it demands a decision. What will we do of Jesus? The most important decision in our lives. 
And the most important decision for every person is what will you do with Jesus? Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. I'd like to give you a chance to turn to Christ right now, wherever you are, if you've never done that before. Would you join me in prayer? First of all, there's just three words that I'd like for you to say. Uh, They're the words your parents or your grandparents or your guardian, whoever raised you, taught you to pray uh, or to say. Sorry, thanks, or thank you, and please. First of all, sorry. God, I am sorry for the sin in my life. I agree with you that I have sinned. I've said things I shouldn't say. I haven't said things I should have said. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've done things I shouldn't have done um, uh, and, and, and failed to do things that I should have done. Um, Lord, I've thought things I shouldn't think. Uh, Lord, I'm sorry and I agree with you uh, about my sin and I wanna repent. I wanna, I wanna turn around. I wanna turn towards you. Thank you, Jesus, for being my wrath bearer on the cross. Thank you for bearing the wrath of a holy God against an unholy me. And now please be my savior. Please have mercy on me. Please extend your grace to me. Please, from this point forward, be my leader, my Lord, my King. Sorry, say it with me, sorry, Thank you, thank you, please. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, would you, wherever you are, would you say out loud with me, amen, which means I agree with you, amen, and one more time together, and amen.